Chapter 24 of Hero Tales from History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hero Tales from History by Smith Burnham. Livingstone the white man of the dark continent. Little Davy Livingstone was a queer, quiet Scotch laddie. His father was a high-minded man, but he was so poor that he had to take Davy out of the village school when he was ten. In those days, the early part of the 19th century, children began to work when they were very young. So Mr. Livingstone sent the lad to work, with other boys of his own age, as a piecer in a cotton mill. David worked from six in the morning till eight at night, stopping only for lunch. With his first week's wages, the ten-year-old boy bought a Latin grammar. He was so eager to learn that he went to night school from eight till ten at night. He studied till midnight, and even later when his mother did not take his books away and send him to bed. His great desire was to be a missionary, so he took up other languages besides Latin, and such studies as would fit him for missionary work. As soon as he was able, he went to London and elsewhere to study, working part of the time to earn enough to pay his way. On a visit to London, Livingstone met Dr. Moffat, a leading missionary in South Africa, and soon decided to work in Africa himself. He had prepared himself to help men's bodies as well as their souls, so he went first as a medical missionary. Dr. Livingstone's first mission station or centre was 700 miles further north than Dr. Moffat's in a region which was dangerous because of savage men, wild beasts, and worst of all, an unhealthful climate. In this lonely place, the new missionary began to tell the ignorant black people about the one true God. He cured them of their illnesses and showed them how to dig canals and build dams to water their little farms. He also taught them to till those farms in a better way than they had known. In the region there were many lions. One day, when the missionary was out with a band of natives, he met one of the big beasts. Livingstone and one of his black men shot at the lion, which sprang up with a roar and bounded into the bushes, through the circle the men had made round him. Then two more lions appeared. Before Livingstone could reload his gun, he saw one great brute with bristling mane and angry eyes springing upon him. Its weight bore him to the earth. The lion seized his shoulder with jaw strong enough to carry off an ox. When someone asked him afterward what he fought just then, Dr. Livingstone replied, I was wondering what part of me he would eat first. In a letter, the doctor described this adventure. With his terrible roar sounding in my ear, the lion shook me as a dog does a rat. The 
but strange to say, I felt neither pain nor fear, though fully conscious of all that passed. As I turned to escape the weight of his paw which was resting on my head, I saw his eyes turn toward Melbelwi, one of the natives, who was about to fire, but his gun missed fire in both barrels. Instantly the lion quitted his hold of me and leaped on Mbawi, biting him badly in the thigh. Then he dashed at another man who was about to attack him with his spear, but at that moment the previous shots the lion had received took effect and he dropped to the ground, dead. Livingstone was bitten in eleven places, his arm was badly mangled, and bones were broken in several places. It was many months before he was well. The broken arm was always weak, and he bore the marks of that big lion's teeth to his dying day. While recovering from his wounds, Livingstone made the long journey to the home of Dr. Moffat, and married that gentleman's daughter, Mary. Miss Moffat was born in South Africa, so that she knew the language and ways of the people. This made her a true helpmeet to her husband in his noble work. Livingstone called himself Jack of all trades. I read in journeying, he wrote, but little at home. Building, gardening, cobbling, doctoring, tinkering, carpentering, gun-mending, farrying, horse-doctoring and shoeing, wagon-mending, preaching, schooling, lecturing in divinity to a class of three, fill up my time. When Livingstone reached the country of one of the black tribes, thousands of miles to the north, all the people of the region, numbering six or seven thousand, poured out to see the white man. The missionary was greatly relieved to find that the chief of this region, who was only eighteen years old, was disposed to be friendly. The white man and his party were well cared for and given plenty of good food, of which they were badly in need. They were nearly starved, because unfriendly natives on the way had refused to sell them food. In regions where the Arab slave traders had robbed, killed and carried away and sold many of the natives, the people were afraid of Livingstone, for they thought all white men must be robbers and murderers. But in reality, the brave Scotch missionary was a great worker against the slave trade, writing and saying all he could to make people in Europe and England know how wicked it was. Although Livingstone journeyed about so much, travel was very hard and dangerous. He and his faithful men often had to go up to their necks in swamps, where the hot, moist air was filled with poisonous insects, and to cross rivers in great peril from the crocodile and hippopotamus. Not only did Livingstone have numerous hairbreadth escapes from lions, elephants and other wild beasts, but he was many times stricken with the terrible African fever. Because of his wonderful recoveries, the natives thought his life was charmed, and they were afraid he was a wizard who worked cures by magic from the devil but the good doctor soon won their friendship by his great kindness to them. Livingstone travelled thousands of miles by water in clumsy boats. He wrote to a friend, 
describing the life on one of these river trips. We rise a little before five, when it is daylight. While I am dressing, the coffee is made, and after I have filled my little coffee pot, I leave the rest for my companions, who eagerly swallow the refreshing drink. Meanwhile, the servants are busy loading the boats, which done, we embark. The next two hours, while the men row swiftly onward, are the pleasantest of the whole day. About eleven we land and eat our luncheon, which consists of what is left from supper the evening before, or zwieback with honey and water. After resting for an hour, we enter the boats again, and take our places under an umbrella. The heat is oppressive, and as I am still weak from my recent attack of fever, I cannot go ashore and hunt. The rowers, who are exposed to the sun without cover, drip with sweat and begin to tire by afternoon. We often reach a suitable spot to spend the night two hours before sundown, and as we are all tired, we gladly make a halt. As soon as we are ashore, the men cut grass on my bed and poles on my tent. The bed is then made, the boxes with our supplies piled on each side of it, and lastly the tent is stretched above. Four or five paces in front of it a huge fire is lighted, besides which each man has his own place according to the rank he occupies. Two of the Makalulus are always at my right and left, both in eating and sleeping, while Makana, my head boatman, lies down before the door of my tent as soon as I go to bed. A space beyond the fire is staked out for the cattle, in the shape of a horseshoe. The evening meal consists of coffee and zwiebark, or of bread made from maize or kaffir corn, unless we are lucky enough to shoot something to supply us with a pot of meat. We go to bed soon after, and silence descends upon the camp. On moonlight nights, the fire is allowed to go out. While Livingstone was exploring to the northward, he discovered the great cataracts of the Zambezi, which are even higher and wider than Niagara. He named them Victoria Falls, in honour of the Queen of England. He also found the lakes in which the Zambezi flows into the eastern sea and the Congo into the western, on opposite sides of the continent of Africa. The two rivers are like two long water snakes with their tiny tails close together but their wide-open mouths thousands of miles apart. Dr. Livingstone had sent his wife to England for the benefit of her health and to educate their children. The people there were greatly pleased with the results of Livingstone's labours in Africa, for all of the country discovered by him would belong to Great Britain. So the British government gave him its support and paid him a small salary for the work he was doing for science and for the world. By this time, other missionaries had come to help save the Dark Continent. The wives of two of these were coming up from England with Mrs. Livingstone when she returned. There was great joy on both sides, that of the free husbands in the heart of Africa and that of the free wives on their way to join them. But Livingstone and both his friends were seized with African fever and when their wives came, the two men missionaries had just died. Even Mrs. Livingstone, 
though she had been brought up in Africa, took the disease and died. The two missionaries' wives soon returned to England, but Dr. Livingstone could not even then be persuaded to leave the needy people to go to England to rest a while and see his now motherless children. Besides all these labours, and besides the exact reports he made on the animal life, flowers, trees, rocks, and geography of that new land, he wrote books about his adventures and experiences which had an immense sale. This made him a man of considerable wealth, but after providing well for his family and for the education of his children, he spent the greater part of his fortune, ten to thirty thousand dollars at a time, for the benefit of his black children. When Livingstone did go to England, it was only for a short visit. While absent from Africa, he seemed always to hear those millions of poor, ignorant people calling him. Once he purchased the parts of a little steamer and brought it back to Africa. The boat was put together and was run on some of the lakes and rivers he had discovered. The vessel proved to be a poor affair, which ran very slowly and was always breaking down. But the natives were astonished and would have worshipped it if he had let them. As time went on, larger and better boats were sent out to him. Once he had to discharge his engineer, but he ran the steamboat himself. He found it easier, of course, to make his journeys with the help of steam, though he had to go to many places where the boats could not be taken. A writer has described a trip Livingstone and his friends made in July. It was now the African midwinter, and the nights were very cold. The tsetse flies were more troublesome than ever. Wild beasts became more numerous every day in this uninhabited region. Herds of elephants, buffaloes, zebras, and many kinds of antelopes were frequently seen which allowed the head of the caravan to approach within two hundred feet of them. The wild boars, of which many were seen, were very shy, while on the contrary troops of monkeys hastily retreated into the jungle at the sight of the travellers, chattering angrily about the coming of the white man. Guinea-fowl, doves, ducks and geese were also plentiful. With the darkness, a new and even more numerous world of living creatures awoke. Lions and hyenas roared and howled about the camp. Unknown birds sang sweetly or screeched as if in fear, and all sorts of strange insect noises were heard. One day Livingstone narrowly escaped losing his life from the attack of a two-horned rhinoceros. This beast was strangely quick, in spite of its great bulk and very savage, being one of the few animals which will attack a man without being first attacked. While making their way through a dense thicket, Livingstone had become separated from the others and was stooping to gather some specimen, when a black rhinoceros made a furious charge at him. But strange to say, it suddenly stopped short, giving him time to escape. In his flight his watch and chain became entangled in a branch, and stopping to loosen it, he saw the beast still standing in the same spot, as if held back by an unseen hand. On reaching a safe distance, he uttered a shout of warning, thinking some of the party might be near. 
At this the rhinoceros rushed away, grunting loudly. While Dr. Livingstone was in England, he was welcomed with highest honours. He was invited to visit Queen Victoria and her husband, the Prince Consort. But so strong was the missionary spirit in him that he preferred talking to cotton spinners and the people in the slums of the East End of London. He was quite glad to go back to Africa and escape from the medals, degrees and other great honours showered upon him. After his return to the dark continent for the last time, he went farther than ever into the interior in an attempt to discover, or at least to prove, where the great river Nile begins. When he had nearly reached the goal, he was driven back by hostile tribes which had recently suffered from attacks of slave traders. At this time the Arabs who carried Livingstone's letters down to the coast to be sent to England destroyed them all. For fear he had written to England about the slave outrages they had committed. For this reason, nothing was heard of him for years. It was thought that he had been murdered by savages or had died of African fever. At last, the publisher of the New York Herald sent Henry M. Stanley, the newspaper's foreign correspondent, with all the money he needed to find Dr. Livingstone, or if he were no longer living, to get any records that could be found. After a long search, the American newspaper man heard of a white man hundreds of miles further in the interior. Trace and trail grew more and more distinct, and at last the American company with the American flag flying marched up to Livingstone's camp on the shore of one of the great lakes he had discovered. Of this meeting, Stanley wrote, As I advanced slowly toward him, I noticed he looked pale and weary. He had a grey beard and wore a cap with a faded gold band on it. I could have run to him and embraced him, only I did not know how he would receive me. So instead I walked up to him and said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Yes, said he with a kind smile. We both grasped hands. I thank God, Doctor, that I have been permitted to see you, said I. And he answered, I feel thankful that I am here to welcome you. I found myself gazing at the wonderful man, at whose side I now sat in the heart of Africa. Every hair of his head, every line of his face, his pallor and the wearied look he wore, all told me what I had longed so much to know. The two explorers spent months together talking over their discoveries and experiences. Stanley had much to tell him of what was going on in the world outside. Nearly all Livingstone's store of supplies had been stolen, but Stanley had prepared for that. He insisted on providing the old missionary with everything he might need. Of Stanley's tenderness, Livingstone wrote to his daughter. He laid all he had at my service, divided his clothes into two heaps, and pressed one upon me, then his medicine chest, his goods and everything he had, with true American generosity. To coax my appetite, he often cooked dainty dishes for me with his own hands. The tears often started to my eyes at some fresh proof of his kindness. As Dr. Livingstone was again recovering from a very severe attack of fever, Stanley begged him to go home to England with him for a year of rest. 
but the aged missionary shook his head sadly. Stanley returned to the outside world. About a year after this, David Livingstone was found kneeling beside his bed in a hut and built of bamboo poles and coarse grass. He had died while praying. Millions of natives in the heart of the dark continent were heartbroken when they heard of the medical missionary's death. They spent months in wailing and mourning, for they had lost their white father. Two devoted black men carried the body of their beloved master hundreds of miles through the swamps and jungles of Africa and placed it on shipboard to be taken back to England. The ship was met at the English seaport by a special train, heavily draped in mourning, which carried the honoured remains up to London. Great Britain has strong reasons for honouring David Livingstone. He had added a million square miles to the known world and put great lakes, rivers, mountains and countries on the map of Africa. There was a magnificent funeral in Westminster Abbey where the great missionary and explorer was buried beside the sacred ashes of kings, queens, princes and statesmen. Thus he received the highest honours England can bestow upon her most illustrious dead. On the black marble slab which marks David Livingstone's final resting place are the last words he is known to have written. They are about the cruel slave trade. All I can say in my solitude is, may heaven's rich blessing come down on every one, American, English, Turk, who will help to heal this open sore of the world. End of chapter 24